Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Now, the way I'm about to begin this episode, I am certain, is a very serious violation of the podcast Best Practices Manual, if such a thing exists. This podcast was posted on October 6, 2019. Now, for some reason, podcasters don't think it's professional to mention the date. It can cause your podcast to seem stale, I suppose, to listeners if they're listening too long after the announced date. You don't mention current dates on your recordings. Well, I'm not going to say I disagree with that standard, but today the date is important to this introduction. So today is October 6th, 2019, and on this Coming Tuesday, October 8th in Jerusalem at 6.16 p.m. local time, meaning local to Jerusalem at 6.16 p.m. local time Jerusalem, the sun will set and the festival of Yom Kippur will begin. Now, it, it may surprise some of you to know that sundown is when festivals begin in Israel. Well, that's because the new day begins at sundown in the Jewish culture. At sundown, it's October 9th there. That, I guess, isn't technically correct, but bear with me. For us in the Western world, tomorrow, whatever tomorrow that is, happens at midnight. We don't go from October 8th to October 9th until the clock strikes midnight, right? Strikes 12. Well, not so in Israel. The new calendar day in Israel, in Jewish culture, is ushered in by sunset. And by the way, the same thing applies no matter where the devout Jew is. Here in the United States, it's the same thing. If it's October 8th, and it's about to be sundown, then in the, the moment after sundown, it's October 9th. That's the way the Jewish culture is. I just happen to be talking about Jerusalem at the moment. The new calendar day in Jerusalem is ushered in by sunset. Now, whether you believe it should or not, whether you think the Bible says it should or not, is not the point. Currently, the day in Jerusalem begins at sunset. Now, you may be thinking, okay, sunset, fine. The day begins at sunset, but you mentioned the sunset in Jerusalem. Why do I care about Jerusalem? Doesn't Yom Kippur happen here as well? Yes, it does. Well, then why do I care about Jerusalem? Because God cares about Jerusalem. He told us, that he chose Jerusalem as the place that would serve as the center of his worship. 2 Chronicles 6.6 Therefore, sundown in Jerusalem, which happens at 6.16 p.m. local time, I guess 18.16 if you want to be a 24-hour clock person, at 18.16 Jerusalem time, it is October 9th, which happens to be the day of the Feast of Yom Kippur. Now, of course, most people have heard of Yom Kippur, but very few outside of Judaism, and unfortunately, even many inside of Judaism, really know what it is. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, and Kippur is translated atonement. But there's much more to it than that, which you will see when we dive a little deeper into the subject. 
Yom Kippur is known in English as the Day of Atonement, and it begins officially at sunset on October 8th. And I must say, this is one of mankind's most important celebrations, regardless of religious affiliation, because this biblical celebration speaks of Christ. Leviticus 23:26 And the Lord spake unto Moses saying Also on the 10th day of this 7th month there shall be a day of atonement it shall be an holy convocation unto you and ye shall afflict your souls and an offering made by fire unto the Lord Now let me make something very clear We at chapel do not celebrate these feasts, these seven feasts of Israel. We honor them for what God meant them to be. God instituted these feasts and he told the Jews to celebrate them, to tell the story of Jesus to the whole world. And that's why we study them and respect them around here. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this eleventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. In the Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Now, we don't have time for all the details. And believe me, there are a lot of details. But Yom in the Hebrew is translated day. We already said that. And the word that gets translated atonement is the Hebrew Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day Yom of atonement Kippur. Now, most of us know what a day is, and most of us will say we know what atonement means. It's defined by Webster's as, quote, reparation for an offense or injury. The day of atonement was the day in which the Israelites did something as reparation for offending and or injuring God. Listen, the critics and the disillusioned claim that God is a God of vengeance, that his record is only a record of anger and punishment. Not so at all. And Yom Kippur is but the clearest example of that truth, the example that he is a loving and merciful God. You see, he made you. He's your father. And like all good fathers, he knows his children better even than the children know themselves. God knows that we are sinners, and yet he still wants us with him. Listen, I suspect like you, to me, this is one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. Why God wants a low-down sinner like me makes no sense. But the fact remains, he does. He's made that clear. He's made it clear that he wants me and you and everyone else to be with him, as many as he can. Now, what complicates matters is the fact that God is a holy God, meaning he's without sin, and also meaning that no sin can be in his presence. Now that means he can't overlook our sin. He's declared himself holy. And in order for us to be with him, we must be holy. Again, there are lots of shades of meaning here, but we don't want to get too bogged down in the details. I would love to share the details with you, but we'd never get through this. So suffice it to say, to be in God's presence, which is his will for us, and it's also something we should want, we must be sinless. Now the problem, we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's word declares that. That's Romans 3.23. Well, nothing gets in the way of God's will. 
So since God can't overlook our sin, it must be dealt with. And that's what the Day of Atonement is about. Now there's something very interesting, by the way, about that Hebrew word kippur. As I've told you before, the Hebrew language is very much like building blocks. Root words form related words, and then it can get relatively complicated. So the root word that forms kippur is kafar. Kafar means, listen to me, to cover. Now the reason this is interesting is because when we cover something, don't we put a barrier between the object and the environment? When something is covered, listen to me, it's insulated. It's protected from the effects of its surroundings and vice versa. In other words, the nature of the thing being covered and its environment, when it's covered, can't affect each other. Let me give you an example. Whenever I have leftovers from dinner, I don't want to throw them away. I usually want to save them, perhaps, for lunch the next day, so I put them in a container that has a cover. That cover serves as a barrier, a obstacle between what's inside and what's outside. It is a protective measure. That cover prevents a negative reaction from occurring. That's kafar, to cover. Now you who are regulars to this program have heard us speak many times on the tabernacle in the wilderness. It is in the tabernacle in the wilderness where the very first Yom Kippur was celebrated. And we've spent lesson after lesson discussing the purpose of the tabernacle. We've gone into detail about the structure of the tabernacle. And we've devoted considerable amount of time to the items within the tabernacle. And we have called them furniture. Those items, we've called those items furniture. You remember all that? Well, one of the very interesting pieces of furniture found in the tabernacle is what the King James translation calls the mercy seat. The mercy seat is very involved in the celebration, the ancient celebration of Yom Kippur. Here's the passage that describes the construction of the mercy seat. Exodus 25, 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now, I've taught on that item many times in the past. And every time I come across it, including this time when writing this lesson for Yom Kippur, I'm struck by something very interesting. I still can't figure out why the translators decided to call this object the mercy seat. Now, I know that the translators borrowed the word mercy seat from William Tyndale who in turn got it from Luther's translation of the Bible. Luther's word, now remember, Luther spoke German. Luther wrote his Bible in German. So Luther's word was Nadenstuhl. I'm sure I butchered that. My wife speaks German, but I do not, as you can tell by the way I pronounce Nadenstuhl. In English, Nadenstuhl literally translates seat of grace. But that doesn't really help me. When I look closely at 
this word mercy seat and I go behind the translation and I go behind the translation of Nadenstuhl, I got to say, these translators appear to be using a little poetic license. They are injecting a translation that does not come over literally from the original. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. The word in the original is kapareth. And I'm hoping that the word kapareth sounds a little bit familiar to you. You see, kapareth is formed from the very same root word as kippur. Kapareth is in the English a lid. That's what the word in Exodus 25, 17 is. It's a kapareth. It's a lid. It's a cover. Isn't it? A lid is a cover. And as you remember, the root word for kippur and also for kapareth is kafa, to cover. The mercy seat should not really be translated mercy seat if you want to be true to the original without injecting meaning. John, are you saying you don't believe it's a mercy seat? I do believe it's a mercy seat. I recognize it as a mercy seat, but the Hebrew word doesn't say it is. Mercy seat is not a translation. It's an interpretation, as is Nadenstuhl. Now, far be it for me to contradict Martin Luther. But if you want to be true to the original, the mercy seat should be translated the covering or the lid. And I don't think calling it that detracts one bit from its true prophetic and spiritual meaning. The mercy seat, the Nadenstuhl, symbolizes Christ and can only be Christ. The mercy seat, you see, is a covering. Christ covers us with his blood. He protects us. He prevents a negative reaction between our nature and the environment of God. He, Christ, is our covering. He is our kapareth. Look, you can call it what you want, but it's a cover. And the cover is Christ. Now, we can and have devoted entire lessons just to that truth. Let's leave that there for now and continue with what we came here to talk about, the Day of Atonement. Now, let's read from Scripture, and I'm going to ask you before I begin to forgive me because this is going to be rather long, but there's really no good place to stop, and there's very little that I can skip over, so this will take a while. Settle back in your chair or wherever it is that you're listening. Leviticus 16, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. The mercy seat, by the way, when it says it's upon the ark, the mercy seat was the cover over the ark. Let me begin again. And the Lord said unto Moses, I know I said I wouldn't stop, but I did. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he will, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with a linen girdle. 
and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock for the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness." And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. That is the feast of the Day of Atonement. Now, as with all of these feasts, it seems there are actually two completely different celebrations, each bearing the same name. There is the pre-destruction of the temple scriptural celebration, that's one, and the post-destruction of the temple man-centered, tradition-laden celebration, the one we observe in modern times. Now, in previous lessons on these feasts, we've spent a fair amount of time on the modern celebrations. This time we won't do that, simply because there is so very little remaining of that original celebration. And most of what happens today is really largely centered on the synagogue worship, most of which is not found in Scripture. Now that, of course, 
is chiefly due to the fact that there's no longer a temple, which once served as the primary location for all of the activities associated with this holiday. First, it was at the tabernacle, and then when it was built in the temple. Well, there is no temple anymore. Therefore, there's no more of these activities. So let's just do our best with the time remaining to summarize the original celebration and at the same time relate the ultimate meaning of all this. In other words, we're going to show you how Christ is and will be all of what Yom Kippur speaks of. Now, actually, let me make a quick correction to that statement. You see, Christ cannot be seen in all of this biblical description of the Day of Atonement. You're going to see why as we get through this first part. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. Now immediately, this ritual seems askew. God has to begin with a warning. It makes it sort of sound temporary. It makes it sound auxiliary, additional. It sounds like God made this part what we might call today a stopgap measure. You see, Aaron can be involved. He's a part of the story. But he has obvious limitations. You see, he's a mortal. Aaron can only be a, a proxy, a stand-in. And because of that, he and we must recognize that his performance as the proxy, as the stand-in, has restrictions both for him and for those he will be representing. You see, Aaron is not fully fitted for this job. And it's really not his job. He's just portraying it. And there are certain things that he must take into account. First of all, he can't do this every day. He can only do this thing, and we'll get into that thing or things in a moment, but he can only do this according to Leviticus 16, 2, not every day of the year. That's what God said. God said he can only do this when God says he can, and that's only once a year. Access to God for sinful man was at that time strictly limited. As I said, Aaron is limited. God has to make an allowance for Aaron. In order for Aaron to tell the story in its fullest meaning, he must become prepared. He must be allowed for. Now, God allows this additional preparation because he has another who will make up the difference eventually. We'll get into that in a minute as well. So it's clear that if Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies to do whatever it is that he's about to do, and he does that when he's not told to, he'll die. So God makes an allowance and permits Aaron one day a year to be in his presence as typified by the Holy of Holies. By the way, that day, that once a year day that Aaron was granted the exemption, was Yom Kippur, as you may have already guessed. Only once a year, on a day purposely called Yom Kippur, was Aaron allowed in. But even then, even though today is your day, Aaron, you can't just waltz in there empty-handed. Verse 3. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering. But why? 
Why does Aaron have to come with a young bullock? Well, this is the difference between law and grace. This is the difference between saved and unsaved. This is the difference between religion and grace. If you're going to go into the presence of God without Christ, you better have something with you. And you better understand that God must make an allowance for you. You see, the atonement actually hasn't started yet. This is all preliminary because it can't start yet because Aaron is still Aaron, a sinner, high priest or not, religious big shot or not. He is a sinner just like you and me. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house. You see, in order for Aaron to foreshadow the work of Christ, his sins must be dealt with. He can't even begin to show the work of Christ while he is still burdened with sin. He hasn't started the type of Christ until his sins and the sins of his house have paid for. The Day of Atonement was for the sins of the people. Aaron was commissioned by God to atone for the sins of the people, and he couldn't do that if he himself was burdened with sin. You know, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews spent a lot of time pointing out the differences between the high priest of old, meaning those of the house of Aaron, and Jesus, our high priest. And he could have started right here. The most glaring difference between Christ and Aaron is found in Leviticus 16.6. Now, I know you may be thinking, okay, but why do we have to witness all this? Listen, I get it that we're to see Christ's work in the atonement, but you told us that that part can't begin until Aaron's sins are dealt with. So why does the Bible include all this other stuff? If this is all about Christ, why do we have to see all this about Aaron? Well, frankly, as with so many types in the Bible, Aaron is not only a type of Christ, but he's a type of you and me. You see, in painting such an ominous picture of the preparation necessary to be in God's presence, we learn the distance between ourselves and God while sin stands between us. We are told purposely that Aaron had to bring a sin offering because without it, he wouldn't survive. His life would not have meaning. This is very serious. Never underestimate the holiness of God. He's not going to just allow anyone in. Oh, such and such died this afternoon. At least he's now in heaven. How do you know that? Not everyone gets access to God. In fact, this is a little humorous, I hate to say. Even before Aaron can present the sacrifice for his sins, God says, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. Listen, even though, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm chuckling because this is kind of funny. Even though, even though it's serious, but when you look at it, it's a little bit humorous. Even though God has instructed Aaron to do all this, Aaron still has to ask permission to be in God's presence. God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be taken casually. Incense in the Bible represents prayer. When the 
smoke rises, it's emblematic of our petitions rising to God. You know that. You know that from our discussion on the altar of incense. Here, the incense represents Aaron's request to be allowed to stand before the Lord. And again, can I say it? This is very scary. God says, you have to ask me to be in my presence. Now, if it was you and me, we'd say, but you called me. But not old Aaron. He's seen God do some pretty amazing and terrifying things. Fine, if you, wanna, you want me to beg to stand in front of you, although it was you who told me to, you got it. How different we are today. Isn't it true that we want God to accommodate us? We want to approve of Him? We want Him to feel lucky to be in our presence? We want to make God into something that's as non-threatening as non-intrusive as possible. We want a God that we can conjure up at Christmas or when grandma's sick or when we really need that promotion. That's not the God of the Bible. I don't know who you're calling on at those special times, but it sure isn't the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, be well prepared when you approach me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 The Day of Atonement was no party, let me tell you. The people feared it and revered it. In the Talmud, it's simply and ominously called the day. So back to Aaron. The incense is filling the Holy of Holies. He's already killed the bullock as his sin offering. And now, verse 14, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Why blood? The life of the soul resides in the blood. It's a symbol that sins must be paid for by death. When blood flows, death results. Now why seven times? Seven is the number of completion. It's a complete sacrifice. The blood is sprinkled completely. Now, just to refocus, we're describing the Day of Atonement. And so far, we've seen that God has told Aaron to do something very special. He's going to bring the atonement for the sins of Israel. But before he can do that, he has to atone for his own sins. To be able to atone for the sins of the people, he must be clear of sin. Otherwise, it won't work. He's slain a bullock. He sprinkled the blood on the enigmatically and rather loosely titled in the English mercy seat. He sprinkled it seven times completely, the number seven being the number of completion on the cover, the lid, the kaporith. All of this symbolizing Christ. In reality, the real celebration hasn't begun yet. So once it's sprinkled the seventh time, now we can begin. Now we can get down to the business he was called to perform. From now on, this speaks of Christ. This was to be repeated year after year. Aaron turned over the high priest roll to the next in line when he died. 
and that high priest was to take on until he died and he passed on, etc. That was what God wanted. He wanted this to happen year after year. It had to happen year after year. It was imperfect. When human beings alone are involved, it's imperfect. So it had to happen year after year. When Christ comes, it happened once, and it was done. But humans are involved year after year. High priests are involved every year. Now, unfortunately, none of this happens anymore. There's no holy of holies. There are no more altars of sacrifice. There's no altar of incense. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And when it left, these feasts ceased. Yes, they're still honored. And the modern Jew does the best they can. But they're not like they were originally. At least for the time being. Now, the purpose of the Day of Atonement is not so the high priest alone can be cleansed of sin. That's just getting the ball rolling. All that does is set the stage for the real purpose. That's where we left off. So what's next? And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, if you're following along, you're going to notice that we have to kind of jump around a bit in order to lay out the process in proper sequence. Now, I want to point something out that's very subtle but profound. The consistency of God's Word is proof of its truth. You see, no one is good enough a forger to make it this amazing. You see, what God is commanding here is consistent with what he's commanded before. According to the law of the offerings found a few chapters earlier in Leviticus, the sin offering for the priest is a bullock. That's what God said when a priest would sin, he would offer a bullock. That's found in the law of the offerings. Well, that's what God commanded for the Day of Atonement as well. The high priest was to offer the bullock for his own sin, right in line with the law of the offerings. Next, after the priest's sins were dealt with, there must be a sin offering for the children of Israel. Again, that's kind of the point of this whole thing. Now for the subtle part. According to the law of the offerings, found in chapter 4 of Leviticus, just a few chapters before the Day of Atonement was described, according to the law of the offerings, if the whole congregation sins, listen to me, then the offering is the same as for the priest. A bullock. But that isn't what God said to do. God said to offer goats. Now we'll get into the plural part in a minute. First, let's deal with the classification of sacrifice. God said it must be a goat. That's what he said for the Day of Atonement. Gather two goats. But that isn't what it says in Leviticus chapter 4. Why do you keep doing this, John? I want you to think. I want you to think about these things. I want you to realize how tangible, how real they are. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, this is Leviticus 4, 13 and 14. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord, considering things which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin. Now the critic will say, aha, inconsistency. The Bible is inconsistent. Wrong. Remember, the complete fulfillment of the Day of Atonement is yet future. The goat in the law of the offering 
was the offering for the individual sinner. God said on the Day of Atonement, bring a goat. Actually, said bring two goats. We'll get into that in a second. The goat was the offering for the individual. My friend, God loves you. He's interested in you as a person. And that's why he's concerned about your personal sins. God wants a relationship not on a national level, but on a personal level. He loves you, John Tomasi. He may love the USA. He may love Michigan. He may love Detroit. But that isn't why he loves you. He loves you, John Tomasi, for you. And he's making sure you are cleared of your sins. Leviticus 4.27, the part of the law of the offerings. And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, or if his sin which he has sinned come to his knowledge, then he shall bring his offering a kid of the goats. Aaron, on the day of atonement, bring a goat that I may forgive each of them as individuals. Amidst all the slaying and the blood and the sprinkling, we can find comfort as individuals. It's gory, but it's also beautiful. He wants to save you. He wants a personal relationship with you. Not as a Jew or as a Catholic or as an American or a German He wants to know you. He wants a relationship with you, and that's what the goats are for. When Christ came, he came for you. That's why you have to pray the, quote, sinner's prayer. That's why you have to go to Christ and ask for forgiveness. That's why you have to ask Christ to cover your sins, to atone for your sins to protect you as a sinner from a holy God, to cover you. The holy God wants you, you, John Tomasi. Does that make sense? But why two goats? Well, to be honest, this is not an easy question to answer, but let's give it a try. As we just read, the law of offerings does not require two goats. The sin offering is a goat. The fact that God requires two on the Day of Atonement is significant, but mysterious. There is some clue in the text. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now let's deal with the easy parts of this first. God said to cast lots. Charles Spurgeon once said, Chance is banished from the faith of Christians, for they see the hand of God in everything. God didn't say, Hey, Aaron, just throw the dice and let's Lady Luck sort this out. Uh Uh-uh. The casting of the lots shows that God is the one who chooses who lives and who dies. He doesn't leave that up to mankind. Not even someone as religiously important as the high priest Aaron. Religion never decides for God. He alone is sovereign. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Well, this is where it gets a little murky. And can I say there's no consensus of opinion on this whatsoever? Well, there's no real controversy about the first one. One is for the Lord. That makes sense. That's the goat 
that will be slain. That one will be the one whose blood will be sprinkled seven times again, by the way, just as before, and for exactly the same reason. Now, no time to review that. But make no mistake, although there are two goats, together they are the sin offering. One goat for the Lord, as it says here, will be the one slain. That's clear. That makes sense. But what about this other one? What about this other goat? That's the difficult one to fully understand. Now, the King James calls this second goat the scapegoat. But I got to tell you, once again, this may be a little bit artful. As before, we're taking a little poetic license, just like the mercy seat is called the mercy seat. Well, the scapegoat is called the scapegoat rather poetically. And once again, actually, we have William Tyndale to blame for this. He's the one credited with coining this word scapegoat. There's no real word in the Hebrew that means scapegoat. And William Tyndale actually got his version scapegoat from the Latin Vulgate Bible's rendition of this verse, where it's called the caper emissarius, literally rendered goat emissary. Now, to be sure, it's not that this is completely spurious. They didn't just pull this out of the air. The original Hebrew word found there in Leviticus 16.8 is Azazel. And Azazel is a very obscure word. In fact, it's only found four times in all of Scripture, and that is, of course, right here in Leviticus chapter 16. And that makes it a rare word, a rare word indeed. And rare words in ancient languages are a translator's worst nightmare. The basis for the Tyndale Bible scapegoat and Jerome's Latin Vulgate caper emissarius is the belief that Azazel should really be Azozel. Two words, which then can be translated goat that departs. But that interpretation entails splitting the word into two parts, as I've said, which some scholars argue is not possible. In fact, scapegoat is in such doubt as a proper translation that most English Bibles after the King James, including the Revised Version, actually leaves the transliterated Azazel in place. It doesn't say scapegoat, for instance, in the Amplified. It doesn't say scapegoat in the Revised Edition. It says Azazel, one for Azazel. But that really doesn't clear it up for us, does it? There are some who feel that the word is actually referring to Satan. Since Azazel is also reportedly the proper name in Jewish tradition of a demon of the desert. Those that feel the second goat is for whoever Azazel is, is because it fits the sentence better. There's a personal Lord, then there should be a personal Azazel. That's why they feel that the word Azazel should stay there. One goat for the Lord and one goat for Azazel. Now, there appears to be no consensus, but I want to give you a couple things to consider. First, we must recognize that there are two goats. Two in the Bible is the number of adequate witness. In other words, if two or more agree, then that thing is fact. No time for scriptural references. You can look it up later. So it's adequate witness. Now, secondly, the second thing I want you to consider 
is that Satan is described in various ways throughout the Bible, but I think there's one particular description that might help us here. Revelation 12.10, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren, which accuse them before our God day and night. The devil is in heaven accusing you and me of being unworthy of God's presence. He's accusing. He's accusing. He's an accuser. Well, the best way to quiet an accuser is to go to them and show them proof of the error of their accusation. As the 19th century dawned in America, slavery was becoming an increasingly divisive issue. Large portions of the country allowed blacks to be free, and large portions of the country demanded blacks be slaves. Obviously, those blacks who were slaves who wished to be free would escape to where slavery was illegal, mainly the North, but not exclusively. Escaped slaves eventually became a very big problem for slave owners. You see, they considered the slaves to be their valued possession, and anyone who harbored them, they argued, should be considered criminals. Say I was to be a guest at your home and I was admiring your collection of Fabergé eggs and one of them accidentally fell into my backpack and I didn't notice until I got home. Well, the moment I discover that I have your property, I had better return it or report it as accidentally acquired or I could go to jail. Or say I have a Fabergé egg collection too, one of my own, and you're at my house, and you see my little jeweled treasures, and you accuse me of possessing your property. Listen to me. All I have to do is prove that you're wrong. I provide a document of a bill of sale. I go to you and show you and prove to you that those belong to me. One of the tricks of the slave owners in the 18th and 19th century was to immediately call into doubt the free status of every black and free states and accuse them instead of, instead of being a free black, accuse them of being escaped slaves. And as a result, this became a big problem. As a result, even slaves who were freed, blacks who were freed, could be rounded up as suspected fugitives and held in local jails. Well, if that were to happen, all the free man would have to do is commission a friend to go to the accuser with proof of free status. Did one of those goats get sent to Azazel, the desert demon, as proof of the fact that the sins of the people were laid on him? I don't know. But there is an interesting and perhaps related passage from the New Testament, Ephesians 4.8, wherefore he saith, when he, and of course we're speaking of Christ, the risen sin-bearer? Wherefore saith he, When he ascended up upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 9, Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Many argue that sometime in the days between his death on the cross and his ascension into heaven, Jesus descended into hell. 
Is this what's spoken of? Or is that goat simply a scapegoat? I don't know. But I think the primary point is this. There was one sin offering that consisted of two goats. One was slain and the other bore the sins of the people. If you're going to tell the story of Christ, you've got a bit of a problem. There's nothing like him. You have to take what you have and modify a bit. You have to take a sinful man, forgive his sins. And you have to take all of the work of Christ and try to package it in one imperfect package, which means maybe two goats. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. In this, there's mystery and certainty. Let's stick with the certainty. God says sin will not go unnoticed. Sin must be dealt with. Neither we ourselves nor the people of the tribes of Israel and themselves could do anything about sin. They stood by and watched Aaron do all of this. They needed, we need, a substitute. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now quickly, this leading of the sin substitute was only to be done by a fit man. In the Hebrew, the word means timely. The Complete Word Study Dictionary says it means someone ready and waiting to perform a task. A fit man is one prepared to lead that goat away. That fit man was to take that sin bearer off where it will never be seen nor heard from again. The goat didn't come back. The goat with all the sins didn't come back. Therefore, the sins didn't come back. They're gone. And this is my argument with the fundamentalist Christian. That crowd doesn't like this part. They think those Sin should hang around a while, not theirs, of course, yours. They don't like that sin goes away. They want to keep pulling that goat back. They tie a little rope around that goat. Keep dragging him back. Listen, God's instructions for that fit man was to lead that sin out to a place where it will never be spoken of again. I've heard good, dedicated, devoted Christians say that their present condition, whatever that may be, is a punishment for sin. I've heard people who in one sentence talk about the efficacy of the blood of Christ to remove sin, who in the next sentence claim that past sin is the reason they have cancer. Yes, I know Jesus died for my sin, but I also know he's punishing me. God won't punish you for your sins if you claim Christ is your scapegoat. He can't. Just like Christ became sin for us, that goat became sin for each individual person in Israel, and that goat is gone. No one will hear from that goat again. Listen, your life may be, may be miserable, and you may have sinned in the past, but those facts have nothing to do with each other if Christ is your substitute. That's God's rule. 
And like so many other things that we just don't have time to get into, the Day of Atonement demonstrates this in stark and surprisingly unambiguous ways. We stand in awe of your word, O Lord. How can we doubt the truth of Christ as our sin-bearer when every page of Scripture shows that to us? I'm sorry we couldn't finish this. Perhaps we'll come back to it again. For the time being, know that God has been prepared for everything you are now or soon will be ashamed of. He has a plan. If you haven't done so yet, go to him. Tell him you need someone to take your place and tell him you know that someone can only be Jesus. And if you've already laid your sins on him, trust him to complete the job. Trust that he will carry you to the finish line and make sure you do everything you can to help those around you do exactly the same. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.